This is Our American Stories, and we tell all sorts of stories on our show about music, business, history. But we especially love sharing stories that help us to develop lasting, healthy relationships from the start. One of our favorite guests is a medical doctor in North Carolina who does much, much more than treat symptoms. Her patients affectionately call her Dr. Rose, so so do we. And we're so glad she's here to share some of her experience. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein has been a practicing pediatrician for 23 years and director of her own practice, the International Family Clinic in Burlington, North Carolina, for the past 16. They provide the best medical care and guidance to underserved families, and they now care for 5,000 children. She is also the author of Who Needs a Village? It's a Mom Thing, a book about how modern parenting fails to equip children with the necessary confidence and skills and how parents, especially moms, can change all of that. Dr. Rose, thanks again for joining us, as always. Thank you so much for having me. I really appreciate being able to talk to people about what I love best, which is raising sturdy children. You bet. Raising good children, raising sturdy... You said sturdy children, right? That's right, because that goes um, pretty much against the... The, the snowflake uh, phenomenon that we have right now. I love it. I love it. So what we do each day is we, we tell a story uh, over about a 15 to 20 minute period. So what story do you have for us today, Dr. Rose? Well, I have a, a story of a young boy uh, that uh, I will call him the incorrigible boy, and his name is Henry. Uh, his mom uh, brought him to me at the direction of his, of her mom. Uh, so in other words, the uh, Henry's grandmother, uh, because uh, Henry's grandmother and I know each other from a relationship at, at the school, at my daughter's school. And she heard about the things that I do, and at, with, especially with moms. And this young man was giving this mom an absolutely hor- horrific time. Uh, he was not o- obeying any of what she was doing, and he is a uh, four going on five, but he would act like uh, he's uh, 29 going on 30. Uh, And a very nice-looking young man, uh, but with some very strange mannerisms. Now, if you talk to this little boy uh, directly uh, before we all got started, uh, and he didn't like what you were saying, he would immediately turn into a bunny rabbit with whiskers and everything, put his little hands up as if he was going to pounce on you, but he was sort of the little bit of the evil bunny rabbit. Uh, and mom couldn't get him to wake up on time, couldn't get him to put his clothes, to sit at the table, because every time she told him uh, anything that was not to his liking, he'd turn into the ferocious, mean bunny rabbit. Uh, At school, he was reasonably well-behaved, but sometimes would have some meltdowns and might even uh, hit a child. Uh, but mom was, she, she was in fear for this, this kid because he would have these meltdowns constantly at home, uh, where he, uh, would hit the other, the, the other siblings if they didn't do what he wanted. Uh, he would hit her, he would yell, or he would just make believe that she didn't say anything and laugh, uh, just, uh, as if somebody in his head had told the, the, the most wonderful joke. His mom was afraid that there was some mental illness going on in this young man uh, because uh, on the father's side of the family, there is a history of mental, uh, of mental illness, uh, um, uh, bipolar disorder and, and uncontrolled anxiety, and, and many of these people uh, did have to be admitted to the hospital. So she said, 
asked me very wisely, are we walking down the same track? And I said, well, I don't think so, uh, just because he can, uh, he can leave his behavior uh, at the door, so to speak, at school. He knows where not to misbehave and where he's not going to get away, and somehow he's categorized you, Mom, as the person that he can have uh, the most of wrath of of his uh, misbehavior or, or, you know, just show off what he, he really wants to act like. Uh, so when I saw this young man, like I said, he's very handsome, very cute, uh, but really didn't want to listen to me at all, didn't want to make any eye contact. But I could tell right away he was very smart because when I was talking to mom, he was looking and listening. And then I turned back to him, and then he would make believe that he was a rabbit again. And so I said, aha, uh-huh, there's a very good brain in that, in, in, in that little head. Let's see how we put this to use, and let's see how he uh, reacts to direct authority. So I sat my doctor's chair a little bit closer to him and, and engaged his eyes, and, and I said, uh, Mr. Henry, you do realize that the things that you have been doing are not good at all. And he looked at me, and then he tried to look away, and I said, No, young man, you look at my eyes, you look at, at adults when they're speaking to you and when you're going to answer back. Do you have an answer? Do you know that what you're doing is bad? And he looked at me in my eyes and he said, yes. And I said, no, Henry, we answer that correctly. We say, yes, ma'am, or no, ma'am. But in this case, it's yes, ma'am. And he looked at me straight in my eyes and I could see all the way. I felt like I could see into his soul. And he said, yes, ma'am. Wow. And I said, well, Henry, it's time to stop. It is time to stop that behavior. It is time for you to start treating your mama right. It is time for you to start treating your brothers and sisters right. It is time to leave that kind of behavior and the bunny rabbit behind. Do you understand me, Henry? And he looked at me dead serious. I swear his eyes almost changed color. They're beautiful blue. And they turned sort of a really dark blue. And he said, yes, ma'am. And I looked over at his mom. I turned around and looked at her because I was, I was really taken aback. And I looked over at his mom and I said, wow. Well, moving on then, I could see the mom was very moved. She said, that's amazing. Well, hold that thought, Dr. Rose, because it is amazing. And frankly, I don't know how you didn't have to pick your, her mom off the floor, frankly. I mean, I would have been on the floor seeing that kind of a transformation. And when we come back... More with Dr. Rose, our in-house mom, giving other moms advice about building and making and creating sturdy kids. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories.
This is Our American Stories, and we rejoin our conversation with Dr. Rose. And my goodness, when we left off, this boy Henry, the incorrigible Henry, who, by the way, didn't obey, who acted up, good-looking boy, strange mannerisms. I mean, well, everybody was afraid of him. They never knew when he would act up. And he would say things that he would just, well, they would come out of nowhere. And mom was afraid that this boy might even be suffering from mental illness of some kind. There was a history, obviously, on the father's side. Dr. Rose, this stunning showdown, it's a little bit of a showdown. You're, you're reading that child, and you're reading Henry, and I guess he's thinking that he knows that you know something about him. And that's exactly what it felt like. Uh, and what I was doing was calling his bluff, And he said, I give. I guess the gig is up. And so he put his little uh, rabbit hands down, and he looked at me, and he said, yes, ma'am, that last time. And I was so taken, I had to look away and look over his mom. And his mom was very moved, and she looked like she was about to burst into tears. And I said, and therefore you see that he has a soul and we are going to get to the, the center of that soul to bring your little boy out. Uh, and what he's been doing is sort of um, using all of these methods so that he did not have to have a relationship with his mom and his brother and sister and n- not to uh, improve his development and his behavior. And so he had, he had made a little world unto himself uh, where everybody had to come to him instead of he being the one to submit or listen to the rules in his home. And by the way, his his siblings, one was old, older by a couple of years and one is younger by the couple of years. But this young man is the ringmaster. He was the one who told the other ones how to behave and what to do. And so obviously the other two siblings were misbehaving quite a bit as well, but not to the extent that young Henry was misbehaving. And so when we figured out, okay, there's, there's a, a good person inside there, or at least a person who was willing to listen and knew that he needed to submit to somebody. And so there's the segue to, to lead him over to his mom. You bet. And you know what's interesting here, Dr. Rose, is that it would have been so easy for this boy to end up being clinically diagnosed treated for all kinds of illnesses he may not have even had. And I think this is one of the running points of the show is very often behavioral problems or just, well, they're behavioral problems that parents can fix. They're not medical problems and shouldn't be necessarily treated as such. Well, in fact, this four-year-old boy had already gone that route. Um, He had been diagnosed to a behavioral uh, expert uh, who um, gave some advice but mom was was asked to step out of the room during during the these uh, sessions. Uh, mom did not see the behavior improve. In fact, she saw that they that he was uh, more uh, wound up after the appointments. Uh, and then they referred him to a psychiatrist and also to an occupational therapist. And so, the more appointments that were made, the more that mom uh, noticed that his behavior was getting more and more out of hand and, and more out of control. And what was really funny is that when I pointed out to the mom that what he really needed was to realize more than anything her authority. Dad uh, was is a dad. He he's not he he is a present dad, but he works away from the home. 
So he goes away for a, a, at a week at a time and comes back for a week or a week and a half. Uh, and this young man will listen to dad somewhat with a, uh, with what mom thought was a bit of disrespect, but he was listening to mom to dad a hundred times better than he was to mom. So I said, "You're you're really the key, mom. You're the key to his getting his getting himself on a path to success." And he doesn't know that, but we're going to have to find that path. Uh, so I said, so we're going to have to strengthen you, and we're going to have to make you the mama who won't be back, back down. And that's that's what we sent mom away with. I gave her ground rules that she was to set for herself. She had to figure out what were her rules, what were her home rules, and I wanted her to write those down, have a conversation with her husband, and say, these are our home rules, and and I will live by them, and you will live by them as well, Mr. Henry. Uh, and so I said, wake times, uh, the time to go to sleep, what will be at the table, uh, all of these things are your rules, and he needs to learn to abide by them. And so the interesting part was that she she decided, you know, what these home rules were, what the consequences were for not obeying, and, and she was going to send him to bed quite early, let's say six or seven, for, be, for, for misbehaving and not letting him eat at the table with the rest of the family when he, um, let's say, disturbed the peace or misbehaved or was disrespectful. The first five days, Mom says that it was incredible. It worked like a charm. But something happened on the sixth day, and Mr. Henry decided that he was going to snap. He was not going to behave well, and in fact, made his behavior, what she said, ten times worse than before. He became belligerent, started throwing things at her, and Mom said, wow, this is really something. I am getting some pushback like crazy, and I'm wondering what to do. So she came back early. I had her come back originally in two weeks. She came back within a week, and she said so, or a week and a half, let's say. And she said, what am I to do? I said, no, no, he wants you to give, Mom. He wants for him to win and for you to lose. But if you stay put and you don't lose your patience and you understand that you are building a human being for tomorrow and keep that goal in front of you, you will not fail, Mom. And she said, okay, you just gave me what I need. I thought that, but I was about to give up. So she went away, came back in another two weeks, and said, voila, we have a boy. He came in, no longer doing the bunny rabbit move, and he was uh, very polite. I put out my hand, and he put his hand very firmly in mine, and I said, "Uh, hello, Henry, how are you? And he said, nice to see you. Uh, Gave me a big smile and said, jump up to to the exam table, Henry. I'd like to take a look at you. Did so, sat there, held his little hands. We have what we call the thinking position when we're supposed to be sort of keeping ourselves still and paying attention. He got immediately into thinking position, looked at me, and I said, so, how's it been? He said, well, it's been okay. (laughs) And therefore, (laughs) we realized that we had a young man who was no longer the incorrigible, and now he is the polite young man. And that is how this story ended. We have mom that turned from anxiety-driven and full of fear, and now she is the mom who uh, fears not. Uh, 
uh, and her three kids because the the ringleader is back uh, back uh, in in into the fold of the home. So the the other two are behaving like normal little human beings as well. Well, this is wonderful, and uh, and and so many parents and particularly moms, are afraid to be in control. And, and by the way, Dr. Rose, you find that many people who want to start their own business are afraid to be in control, afraid to be the boss. And you had to break her of her fear because, boy, you let a young boy run the house, and it is not going to end well. We're talking to Dr. Rose, and she does such amazing work. One final point, 30 seconds. This enabling that happens, I mean, the mom was enabling the boy in essence and in the end, then the, the kids sort of just followed along. Um, what do you advise a, a mom to do in this situation, just real quick? The, the, the important thing is to realize that that child was given to you, mom or dad, to be able to raise them. And the, the outcome is the most important thing. Don't give up tomorrow for today. Don't enable today to tomorrow's behavior by somebody, something that you want to give into today. The outcome is the most important thing. It's just like an investment. You will get out of it what you put into it. Yep. Do, not, do not enable your child because he's the one or she's the one who's truly going to suffer in the end. No doubt. And Dr. Rose, thanks so much as always for joining us. Dr. Rosemary Fernandez-Stein, our in-house mom, teaching other moms in particular, how to just create and build sturdy children. Thanks so much for joining us as always. Thank you. This is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Stories. You go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear all that we do. That's ouramericannetwork.org. our American stories and today we're going to do something a little bit unusual we're going to talk about an image about a picture here's Jim Robbins author of this time we win revisiting the Tet Offensive on a photograph that has had tremendous impact on memory and on history Eddie Adams 1968 photograph Saigon execution is one of the most famous images of the Vietnam War. It's one of the most famous war images ever taken. It's a very familiar photograph. You only have to make an arm movement to explain it to people. Everybody's seen it. General Luan of the uh, South Vietnamese National Police shooting a Viet Cong terrorist named Bay Lop. 
in the streets of Saigon on February 1st, 1968. It has been used by people to typify the brutality of war in general and specifically to argue against the Vietnam War, saying it was an unjust war and that the people the United States was supporting were not worthy of our support. Most attention has focused on General Luan, but who was he shooting? Bay Lop, also known as Lem, had been caught in the act of killing disarmed members of Luan's unit, the National Police, and also believed to have been involved in other brutal killings ordered by the North Vietnamese, including some people that General Luan had known. The general had just seen, he had come from the scene, where his men had been gunned down and left in a ditch. Eddie Adams, one of the journalists on the scene, a former Marine combat photographer from the Korean War, and a noted photojournalist uh, in Vietnam. He took the photo by reflex. He had no idea this was going to happen. Nobody had any idea. It just happened. And by reflex, he got this iconic image, with the bullet passing through Baylop's head. After he shot down the VC, Luan turned to the journalist nearby and walked over. He said, he killed many of my friends. Do you understand? Buddha will understand. And then he walked away. The journalists were surprised. They thought that perhaps he might try to confiscate their film, but he didn't. Eddie Adams later won the Pulitzer Prize for Spot Photography for 1969. And the picture was immediately used by anti-war opponents, politicians like Robert Kennedy, and others seeking to show that this was not a war that we should be fighting. One question is, was it legal? Was what General Luan did legal? It's not so cut and dried. Yes, Baylop was a prisoner, but he was an irregular. He was out of uniform. He was caught with a weapon in the act of committing his own war crimes. He was in Saigon under martial law, and he was in an area that had recently seen fighting. Under the 1949 Geneva Convention, which would have been the governing document, for a guerrilla to enjoy the rights of a combatant, they would have to be in uniform openly carrying weapons and answering to a known command structure. Otherwise, the domestic law would rule. And as I mentioned, Saigon was under martial law. So it's not necessarily cut and dried that what General Luan did was legal. Nevertheless, it's not true that it was automatically illegal either. Eddie Adams later got to know General Luan and found him to be a good and a kind man. He did work with orphans, he was a noted pianist. He was a brave pilot before he had become the head of the National Police. And he was loved by his men. He led from the front. His men respected him, and he loved them. A few months later, leading from the front, General Luan was badly wounded. But he didn't leave South Vietnam. He stayed there, even though he had lost his command and lost his position but he stayed in the country that he loved, escaping in 1975 with his family and one bag and basically just the clothes on their back. He resettled in Northern Virginia and ran a pizza restaurant, although he remained a notorious figure to many.
Jenner Lawan and Eddie Adams became friends, and Eddie regretted how the photo had hurt Lawan. But Lawan didn't blame him. He said if Eddie hadn't taken that photo, someone else would have, and it was just fate. When Lawan died in 1998, Eddie Adams wrote a eulogy in Time magazine. He said that two people died in that photo. The general killed the VC, and he killed the general. One was with a gun, and one with a camera. Eddie said that photos are one of the most potent weapons in the world, but he also said that photographs lie, and that photo was a lie. People didn't understand what they were seeing. Eddie would never talk about that photo. He became a professor. He taught art classes at a getaway in upstate New York. He had taken many photos after that. He was a photographer for Parade magazine. He said his best work was documenting the Vietnamese refugees who escaped the boat people. But everyone wanted to talk about Saigon execution, but Eddie did not want to talk about it. And in his eulogy, he asked what should be the most important question, because many people have an opinion about the photo. But the most important question is: If you were in that situation, if you had just seen the bodies of your friends lying in the street, if you were in the heat of combat and in the heat of the moment, and you saw the person who did this, what would you do? What a story! I think we're all just gathering our breath here, because that's a it's a picture we've all seen and a story we don't know, and we should. And good job on that, Stan. And thank you, Jim Robbins author of This Time We Win, Revisiting the Tet Offensive. But a little more context, folks, for that photo. Before that shot was taken, Baylop and his communist sabotage unit entered a South Vietnamese armor camp. He demanded that the lieutenant colonel teach the Viet Cong how to drive tanks. When the officer refused, Baylop slit the throats of this South Vietnamese officer, his wife, six children, and 80-year-old mother. Baylop was later captured near a mass grave with 34 civilian bodies and said that he was proud to have carried out his orders. That's the man who was brought to General Lowan. That's the story that was never told by anti-war protesters using Eddie Adams' photo to attack the war and our allies. General Lowan later lived a quiet life, running his North, Northern Virginia pizzeria and raising five children and nine grandchildren with his wife. Eddie Adams remembered visiting Lowan's pizzeria and noticing that vandals had written on a bathroom wall, we know who you are, expletive. I just, ah, how do you live with something like that? Well, did they? And that's the point of this story. When the general died, Eddie Adams said this, quote, this guy was a hero. America should be crying. I just hate to see him go this way without people knowing anything about him. Well, that's what we do here in Our American Stories. Reasonable folks can and will debate the Vietnam War or the legality or morality of General Lowan's actions. But now we can at least have that conversation knowing more than what any single picture can say, what any single picture can reveal. This is Lee Habib. 
And this is Our American Stories. American stories and now it's time for our story of a song and we've done a bunch of these and we love doing them we did Georgia on my mind light my fire Ray Manzarek walked us through that one another brick in the wall and how that song came to be there goes my life we heard the song performed by the guy who wrote that song and why he wrote that song very moving Jesus take the wheel and our favorite here at our American stories give me shelter and those background tracks, that one lone African-American female backup singer adding this haunting element that makes the song. And go to ouramericannetwork.org to hear any and all of our stories of a song. And today, it's Chris Christopherson's Why Me? And this is one of the great writers, a terrific actor, too, an all-around man's man, ladies' man. Everybody loved and loves Chris Christopherson. And my goodness, me and Bobby McGee alone get you there. He wrote that. And Sunday morning, coming down. Why Me was recorded by Christofferson in 1972. And it was his lone major country hit as a solo recording artist, reaching number one on the Billboard magazine Hot Country Singles charts in 1973. Here, Chris Christofferson tells the story of exactly why and how he came up with that song back in the 1970s. And it had a lot to do with Larry Gatlin and his song and the type of music that Larry was recording at the time. We've been down in Cookville with a bunch of people doing a benefit for uh, for Dottie West's uh, high school band or something. Then uh, Connie took me over to to church the next day to to Jimmy Snow's church. Uh, I, I had a profound uh, religious experience uh, during during uh, the the uh, session, something that I hadn't never had happened to me before, and uh, and uh, why me came out of it. Everybody was kneeling down, and uh, and uh, Jimmy said uh, uh, something like, "If if anybody's lost, please raise their hand." And I was I was kneeling there, and I don't go to I don't go to church a lot, and uh, and uh, the notion of raising my hand was uh, out of out of the question, <laughs> and I thought uh, I I can't imagine who's doing this, and all of a sudden I felt my hand going up, and I was hoping nobody else was looking because everybody was had their head over, bend over, uh, 
praying, and then he said, uh, if, if anybody is ready to accept Jesus, something like this, uh, come down to the front of the, of the church. And uh, uh, I thought that would never happen. And, uh, and uh, I found myself getting up and walking down with all these people and going down there. And, and I don't really know what he said to me. He said something to me like, are you ready to accept uh, Jesus Christ in your life or something? And I said, I don't know. I, I didn't know what I was doing there. And he put me down. <laughs> he said, kneel down here. And, and he, uh, I, I can't even remember what he was saying, but whatever it was, was such a release for me that I, w I found myself weeping in public <laughs> and... and uh, and uh, I felt the, this uh, forgiveness that I didn't that I didn't know I even needed. Then Christofferson and this small group with some musicians. By the way, one of them was next to him. His name's Willie Nelson. They performed the song. Why me, Lord? What have I ever done to deserve even one of the pleasures I've known? Tell me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth loving you or the kindness you've shown? And there have been a whole bunch of people who've recorded this song. Elvis Presley among them. He incorporated it into his set with the song Why My Lord back in 1974 in January and then right up until his last concert tour. It was first released on the live album Elvis recorded live on stage in Memphis. The recording is from his March 20, 1974 concert in Memphis, Tennessee. He often introduced the song for J.D. Sumner, to sing one of his favorite songs. Sumner would sing the verses, and Elvis would then join in the chorus. Let's take a listen. Thank you. I'd like to ask J.D. Sumner to stand up to sing one of my favorite songs, Why Me, Lord?
And the favorite version here at Our American Stories involves two of our favorites from two very different walks of life, two different styles of music, the great Johnny Cash and the great Ray Charles. And with that, another story of the song, Chris Christopherson's song, you heard Elvis do it. My goodness, so many people did. Let's listen to Ray and let's listen to Johnny do it. me, Lord, what have I ever done to deserve even one of the blessings I've known? Why me, Lord, what did I ever do that was worth love from you and the kindness you've shown? Wasted it, so help me, Jesus. I know what I am. What I am. Now that I know that I've needed you, so help me, Jesus. My soul's in your hands. This is our American stories, the story of a song. And this one, Why Me, by Chris Christopherson. And let's take it back. Gospel being at the root of so much of American music. Let's listen to Ray Charles, play those keyboards, and hear Johnny Cash take it out. This is Our American Stories. Try me, Lord, if you think there's a way that I can repay what I've taken from you. Maybe, Lord, I could show someone else what I've been through myself on my way back to you.
is Lee Habib, and this is Our American Story. And, well, we're going to spend some time on Vince Lombardi on this day in history. He retired, and Hengler has come up with his usual excellent produced piece on Coach. Here it is. I'll tell you something, Leroy, you're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Come on, let's beat him up there! Vince Lombardi was born in Sheepshead Bay, Brooklyn, and went on to be the icon of winning and success in America and throughout the world. This is his story, as told by his players, his family, and himself. Our narrator is the unmistakable voice of John Facenda. And why not? The man nicknamed the Voice of God could take classic sports footage and make it even more unforgettable. So let's begin. Here's John Facenda. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, 1913. He was born on June 11th in Brooklyn, New York. His godfather was Sonny Jim Fitzsimmons, a legendary racetrack figure who trained three derby winners. When he was eight, he was an altar boy at St. Mark's Church. He wanted to be a priest. Here's Vince's mother, Mrs. Matilda Lombardi. He wanted to be a priest, then all of a sudden, that was off. Lombardi was an all-city fullback at St. Francis Preparatory High School and then accepted a scholarship to Fordham University in the Bronx to play for the Fordham Rams and their coach, Jim Crowley, one of the four horsemen of Notre Dame in the 1920s. Here's Tim Cohane, the former publicity director at Fordham University. Those days, Fordham had a play in which Lombardi is the right guard, had to block the Pittsburgh left tackle Tony Matizzi, who was 215, 220, an All-American player. Lombardi weighed about 172. And uh, in trying to block Matizzi, or in blocking him, Vince received severe uh, cuts inside his mouth to the extent that he played almost 60 minutes with a mouthful of blood. I think the point in that is that there's nothing that Lombardi has demanded of the Packers that he didn't demand of himself full measure in his own playing days. In 1937, he graduates cum laude from Fordham. He goes to law school, marries, and is forced to find work. He coaches at St. Cecilia's High School in New Jersey and teaches Latin, physics, and chemistry. In 1947, he returns to Fordham as an assistant coach. In 1949, he goes to West Point as an assistant to Red Blake. Lombardi gave all the credit for his football success to Army's Red Blake and his time at West Point Academy. In 1954, Lombardi became an assistant for the New York Giants, but saw himself as a head coach. For five years, Lombardi searches impatiently for a head coaching position. He's rejected for one reason or another. In February of 1959, he arrives in Green Bay head coach and general manager of a team that hasn't seen a winning season for 11 disastrous years. A team with no direction, no future, and no morale. Here's Paul Horning. We knew from the outset that he was in command, a take-charge guy, and a guy that you couldn't fool around with. Here's Vince. I didn't come in and have a meeting with the players and say, myself, I wonder what their morale is going to be. I wonder how they're going to accept me. That wasn't what I said to myself. They're going to have to accept me. I'm not worried about their morale. I'm worried about Vince Lombardi's morale here. Alone, Lombardi resuscitates a disorganized, depressed, dying team. He force-feeds the Packers with his will to work, his demand for discipline, his relentless drive to win. By summer's end, the Packers are Lombardi. 
Here is Jerry Kramer. We were graded, of course, every play of every game throughout the year. And uh, on Thursdays, the grades would be posted on the blackboard for every eye to see. And, uh, Get him out of there, will you? Perhaps this was the start of something, instilling some pride in the individuals. Here again is Paul Horning. He's always said that you can't play a football game on Sunday. You have to start playing that football game on Tuesday, the first day of practice. Come on, look at me, 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 look at me. Look at me. All right. And he's always believed that there's only two things that come before football. That's your religion and your family. There's only one job, and that's football. Here again is Matilda Lombardi. Somebody said he made football players out of some men, and he made men out of some football players. I think he's much more proud of the fact that he made some men out of football players. Here's the great Bart Starr. He tells you that if you give anything less than the best that you have within you at any time, regardless of the, the situation, regardless of the consequences, that uh, you're cheating yourself, you're cheating your teammates, you're cheating professional football, and you're cheating the fans who, uh, uh, who have made the game what it is today for you. But most of all, you're cheating your maker who gave you that God-given talent with which to succeed. Here's Vince. Anybody who has the idea that just to play or just to take part and that's all is necessary, I think, I think he's in the wrong business. I think he's in the wrong country. One of the things that made America great is to try to be the best in everything that they do. And the best, again, is signified by winning. Here again is Jerry Kramer. I've made the statement at times, his gifted children, and I think he thinks of everyone on the club as a child, or his child particularly. And he drives his gifted people so much harder than he does anyone else. He demands that you use your God-given ability the best you can. Here's Willie Davis. He's a coach that I'm sure that have prepared a lot of us to go out and live in a competitive society. Uh, he taught us a lot of values about life. As head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers, Lombardi led the team to five NFL championships. And like all good things, even the best things, well, this happens. Green Bay Packer football, as all of football, has grown in leaps and in bounds since 1958. The season begins... Take a good, hard look. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, head coach and general manager of the Green Bay Packers. A winner. To every task, he brought the desire, the dedication, the discipline to succeed. He never coached a losing team. Because of the nature of the business and because of the growth of the business and the corporate structure of the Packers, I believe it is impractical for me to try to do both jobs and I feel I must relinquish one of them. How about regrets? If I had to do things all over again, I, I think I would be very, very... I think I would pray for more patience, maybe, and more understanding. I, I think these are the two areas where I could, uh, I could improve a great deal, and I've been trying to, believe me. Vincent Thomas Lombardi, February 1st, 1968. On this day in history, Vince Lombardi retired. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories. Great job on this one, Greg.
This is Lee Habib with Our American Stories, and we're back with our This Day in History segment brought to us by Hillsdale College, the best place in America to learn about our nation's history, the Constitution, great literature, all the things that matter in American life. Today we're celebrating the life of the late, the great, Vince Lombardi. The Lombardi Trophy, after all, was named after him. A lot of folks don't know who he is. And whether you like football or not, it's not going to matter when you hear this life story. Known by many to be perhaps the greatest football coach of all time, in 1959, in Lombardi's first year ever as head coach, he took the Green Bay Packers through their first winning season in 14 years. He then went on to win the NFL championship game in 1960, the world championships in 61, 62, 65, 66, and 67, and let's not forget that they won the first two Super Bowls. Lombardi wasn't just the greatest football coach in history because he inherited the best team. He had to build it from scratch. And because Lombardi had vision and faith in that vision and could communicate that vision and execute on it, he was the man he was. Here today to discuss the leadership qualities and styles of Lombardi is Pat Williams, co-owner of the Orlando Magic and author of over 80 books on leadership, including Vince Lombardi on Leadership, Life Lessons from a Five-Time NFL championship coach, one I highly recommend you pick up. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Lee. Nice to talk to you. I hope you're doing well. Oh, you bet. And, you know, we've talked about it, you know, Coach Wooden, which was a whole lot of fun. And I think this one might be equally fun, Pat. A very different man with different style. But my goodness, in the end, how he made men better. Uh, let, let's, if we can, talk from the start. Vince Lombardi did, didn't just fall into the Packers job. It was a long and let's just call it a strange journey. Tell us a bit about this man. Well, he was from Brooklyn, and he, was, he played uh, football in, in high school and then went to Fordham in New York and had a wonderful career really as a player. Uh, there wasn't uh, really much of pro football around, so he went into teaching and coaching at the high school level you know, across the river in North Jersey and had good success. He was an excellent teacher, by the way and uh, coach football and uh, coach basketball. So he had a wide range of uh, teaching and coaching experiences. Then, uh, after World War II, uh, he had the opportunity, his first opportunity, to get into co- college coaching. He became an assistant at his alma mater, Fordham University, and spent a year or two there and then got a big break uh, by being hired by Red Blake, who was the head football coach at Army uh, in, at West Point, and uh, he had a good run there. In the meantime, he was uh, seeking out head coaching jobs. He was getting up in years. He was in his late 30s, approaching 40, and wanted to become a head coach, and, and nothing opened for him. He did some interviewing, but never got that opportunity. And then he got another big break when the New York Giants uh, hired him, his hometown team, and hired him as, a, as an assistant coach. At the same time, they hired Tom Landry. So you can imagine these, these two great young and, and getting a little bit older assistant coaches were there. The Giants had good success. They had a good run. And finally, finally, Lombardi got some interviews with NFL teams. And at the age of 45 years of age, the Green Bay Packers hired him in 1959. And Milwaukee, Wisconsin, or Green Bay, Wisconsin, I should say, is a far cry from northern New Jersey and New York City. What, this was a big change and a big lifestyle change for Coach Lombardi, wasn't it, Pat? 
Well, it was huge, and I think his real dream was to coach the Giants. I think probably uh, Tom Landry wanted the same thing, but uh, they had a head coach, and they weren't going to fire him, and so uh, both of them had to move on. Landry went to Dallas, of course, and uh, took over the expansion Cowboys, and there was Vince Lombardi with his really great first real good opportunity, but it was in Green Bay, Wisconsin. Uh, so that's where he landed. Uh, his dream to be a head coach was right there for him. In addition to being the head coach, he had full authority as the personnel director and the general manager. I had an understanding with a very previously meddlesome board of owners up there that uh, Lombardi was the voice and the decision maker. And so he had full power and uh, took over a struggling franchise that had a uh, tough go of it. And uh, over time, not much time really, uh, set standards in in coaching and success that, uh, well, we haven't seen the likes of. You know, Sonny Jurgensen, who played for Coach uh, when he went to Washington, said, quote, I think his background as a high school teacher helped make him a great head coach in the NFL. Talk about that, Pat. Well, listen, Lombardi himself said they call it coaching, but it's really teaching. And everybody who ever played for him in Green Bay and then that one year in Washington before his death uh, would tell you that he was just a superb teacher. Uh, At clinics, they still rave about how he would sit there or be there, you know, for hours on end uh, describing one play for example, and what everyone, every player should be doing and all the little minutia that went into it. He was just a crackerjack teacher. And, uh, but in addition to that, Lee, he was teaching life. As I did all the interviews with the old Packers on this book, it was amazing. You know, they learned football under him, and they took away a lot of football lessons. But what they really said is that he was preparing us for life. Long after our football careers, he was getting us ready for the long pull of our life. And those lessons that he taught us uh, through football, you know, are still with us today. Yeah, and how many men can say that they have men who are still teaching and coaching us on life and not just our careers, Pat? You know, I wanted to relay a story. David Moranis's book has a story uh, in it of Coach Lombardi at West Point. He's an assistant at West Point, you know, coaching obviously for this legendary head coach. And his job is to run game film to the Waldorf Astoria Hotel in New York City, to run it to a pretty famous general. And, and Pat, this is back when generals were generals big generals. Talk about the role of that general, Douglas MacArthur, because can you imagine a young man having to like knock on a door and the door opens and it's Douglas MacArthur and then you sit and watch game films together? Talk about Douglas MacArthur if you could, Pat. Well, first of all, MacArthur was a huge Army football fan, even during World War II when he was uh, anchored in the Pacific. You know, he kept up with it every week and uh, wanted to know what was going on. So, he was a huge, huge Army fan, and uh, sure enough, you know, Lombardi was, uh, you know, just cutting his teeth as an assistant, and uh, one of his assignments was to drive the film each week down to New York so that uh, uh, Douglas MacArthur could watch the games. That was long before television, of course, and long before ESPN, you know, where everything is recorded, but uh, that was a big deal to MacArthur to get that film brought into him, and uh, that was one of... Vince Lombardi's assignments. Well, and you know, in the end, West Point, and we told a great story back when we were doing Roosevelt, 
If you remember, Roosevelt thought football was so important in the formation of men's character, in the formulation of, in the end, really a good military force. So I think probably Douglas MacArthur's affection for football was what it meant to the institution, West Point, and and what West Point meant to our U.S. military, Pat. Well, and so many of those generals, you know, took part in sports. You know, Eisenhower, for example, went there and played football until he got injured. Uh, so football was and still is a big deal at West Point, and uh, it meant a lot. It meant a lot to the entire uh, United States Army, and uh, still does. The Army-Navy uh, rivalry is alive and well, and always will be so. So Lombardi had a few years of that, Lee, and he made the most of it. So when his time came to go to the Giants as an assistant, you know, he was ready and made his mark there. Those old Giants, and I got to a few of them in writing this book. There are not many left. Uh, Frank Gifford is gone now. I talked to Roosevelt Greer. I had talked to Sam Huff, um, Bob Schnelker. I mean, they're very few, but uh, they all had vivid memories. I talked to uh, Pat Summerall before he died, and they all had vivid memories of uh, Vince Lombardi as the assistant, and they all knew that it was just a matter of time before he was going to be a head coach. You bet. My goodness, that the New York Giants had two assistant coaches named Tom Landry and Vince Lombardi, and that neither of them ended up being the head coach of the New York Giants. That's a giant oops, Pat. And you know you're in management of a sports franchise. That's a big oops. Well, Jim Lee Howe was their coach, and he had good success. Uh, he had turned all the most of the coaching duties over to Lombardi and, and Landry, but they and they had won. So the Giants were in a tough spot, you know, to to fire a, a very successful coach and uh, a popular guy and replace him with one of those assistants. It just didn't seem right. And the Mara family, uh, so ethical, and they do everything at such a high plane that uh, you know that really wasn't going to happen. So but true. as you can see, both of those coaches went on and had great careers and i'm i'm sure the giants uh, even to this day miss them so true more with pat williams and the life of coach lombardi this is lee habib this is our american stories Habib, and this is Our American Stories. We're on with Pat Williams, who joins us whenever we're doing an important coach, business leader. We had an amazing time doing two hours with Walt Disney, one of which we spent with Pat, and we also did two hours on John Wooden, uh, one of which we spent with Pat, and he's written the books on so many of these men, and uh, he's also happens to be the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, has adopted, I, I, I've lost count, Pat, it's so many kids you've adopted, and you, uh, as a sideline, you run, what, 4,000, you know, marine, marathons and triathlons, and it's just, you're, you're, you're just a remarkable human being, and thanks so much for taking the time to join us, Pat. 
My pleasure, Lee. Nice to talk about Vince Lombardi anytime. You bet. Hey, let's talk about the role. I'm going to read from you uh, about the role of Coach's faith in his life. And from your book, you write, Young Vince's life revolved around the Catholic Church. He was an altar boy at St. Mark's, and he attended Mass every single day until his death. If there was one dimension of Lombardi's life that defined him above all others, it was his faith. Talk about that, Pat. Well, he grew up in a strong Catholic home uh, in Brooklyn, and, uh, and listen, there was some sense that, that he might go into the priesthood, but he was a strong believer in godly, and he was very, very faithful uh, to his religion. He was uh, at, at Mass every morning, and that went on his entire life. He talked openly uh, with his team, for example, about uh, his faith and about the importance of, of God in your life. And he talked very openly also about love and uh, created a bond of love uh, with those players. And we don't think about that when you think of Lombardi, but uh, that was very much uh, a part of who he was. And to, his, to this day, his players you know, still remember that, and uh, that made a deep impact on them. You know, he, he did something unusual that I don't think most people knew about, Pat. He went through four years of a six-year program to be a priest at Brooklyn's Cathedral College. Talk about that. Yeah, there, was many, there were many thoughts, I'm sure, in, in his mind that he was going to go into the priesthood, and that was going to be his life journey. Uh, the football bug bit him, and uh, the rest is history. But uh, he really was, I, I think, a priest you know, through his profession and uh, never, never really lost sight of the importance of, of a strong relationship with the Lord in your life. And uh, that, that's really what drove him. That was a huge part of who he was. Well, you know, the way that most folks know Coach Lombardi was, well, that old-school sort of temper and that old-school discipline. And, of course, the word discipline comes from the word in the end, love. I mean, this is, a, this is how we evidence love in our children's lives is through discipline. And this was back in a day when, well, fo- folks sounded like this, and Lombardi's style of discipline was infamous for being loud, for being harsh. Some might say cruel and unusual. Americans remember sounds like these. Get him out of there, will you? Hey, what about that now? He had him on a, hey, he had him on a shirt. He had him on a shoulder pad. He didn't have him on a mask. What the hell's going on out here? Hey, interference. Interference. I'll tell you something, Leroy. You're not going to get your job back unless we get a better performance. Ouch. You know, Coach, Coach, look, I'm half Italian, Pat, so I think a part of this has to do with ethnic ethnic roots and ethnicity. But talk about this aspect of his coaching style, how the men felt, how the fans felt. And in the end, it's effectiveness, Pat, because this is the bottom line. It's effectiveness. Well, he could bark, there's no question, and he could really get after you. He could get after his players um, to the point that some of them, you know, just didn't handle it well. There's the great story. Uh, about Bart Starr, his young quarterback, and uh, at the beginning, uh, uh, Lombardi would tear into him, you know, out on the field in front of his players, and uh, Bart Starr really struggled with that. He went home and told his wife and said, listen, I uh, don't mind if he gets after me when, when we're in his office, but it's really humiliating. How am I meant to lead these guys, you know, if he's constantly tearing into me? And, and Jerry Starr said, well, Bart, why don't you go in and talk to him? 
Jerry later said, I never thought he'd do that because Bart didn't really like confrontation. But uh, the next day, sure enough, Bart Starr went in there and said, Coach, if you need to say something to me, uh, please do it in private and uh, keep it that way. It's going to be tough to lead this team, you know, if you're constantly on me. And Bart Starr said that's the last time, you know, he ever did that. You know, anything he had to say to me, it was always in private. And so uh, uh, Lombardi, uh, you know, could adjust. We, we, we often think of him, it's my way or the highway. But he, he, he could adjust, and he understood that each one of his players was different, and he could adjust to them. You have a quote in your book I wanted to read you, Pat. He said, he said this, A good leader must be harder on himself than everyone else. He must first discipline himself before he can discipline others. A man should not ask others to do things he would not have asked himself to do at one time or another in his life. Uh, this, this aspect of discipline, Pat, talk about that. Well, I think that that was Lombardi. You know, he uh, was down on the field. He was visible. He was present. Uh, He wasn't up in an ivory tower, you know, telling people what to do. He was right down among them and uh, lived his life right down among the troops. And uh, I think that's what a great leader does. Uh, They are visible and available. And they're, they're right there among their players. So, And Lombardi was a great student of human nature. He knew what he was doing. Uh, he wasn't just uh, aimlessly, you know, attacking people. He wanted the very best from them. And uh, over time, he learned uh, how to deal with each one of his players and how to motivate each one of those guys and, and bring out the very best in them. And uh, over that period in the 1960s, well, nobody did it better. Yeah, and, you know, it's interesting that when Bart, Bart Starr comes to coach and offers some advice to coach about how to coach him, he listened. And this gets to that side of of discipline that I would call the mercy and understanding side. And a good leader knows how to use both because he knows his men. Pat, talk to us about how in exhibiting the mercy Lombardi's faith taught him, he was able to gain the faith and trust and hard work of his players. And I'm thinking of a story you tell about the backup quarterback, Zeke Bretkowski. Well, that's one of my favorite stories in the book. I talked to Zeke Batkowski. He lives up in the panhandle of Florida. Uh, he's in his mid-80s, but he told me the story uh, about how, I guess this was the off-season, there was a golf tournament going on, and a bunch of the Packers were in it. And somehow or other, uh, Zeke Batkowski lost his championship ring, and he was just devastated, just absolutely destroyed. And couldn't find it. Nobody could find it. Uh, uh, apparently, eventually, uh, Vince Lombardi heard about this situation. And that night, uh, with the use of a flashlight, uh, he went back out around parts of the golf course and darned if he didn't find the ring. And the next day, presented it back to Zeke Bratkowski. And, th- and that had to be, gosh, that was, what, 50 years ago? Uh, Zeke Bratkowski can't get over it. He's still uh, just dumbfounded that that happened and that Vince Lombardi went to that trouble out there at night with a flashlight and and found the ring. So uh, Lombardi cared about his players. They really were his his sons uh, to to a large degree. And uh, that's why even to this day, his players, elderly men now, 
you know, have such strong feelings about him. Yeah, and uh, we're going to play a clip when we come back, and it's uh, from Jerry Kramer. And he, it's decades after being coached by Coach Lombardi, and he, he, he's holding back the tears, a grown man holding back the tears of another grown man coaching him as a grown man 30 years before. This is Lee Habib. I'm with Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, no better writer on leadership in this country, and the subject, Vince Lombardi. On this day in history, he retired. Habib, and this is Our American Stories. Are you going to go by my way by Lenny Kravitz? And everybody went the way of Vince Lombardi. He got men to play together with common purpose and to love one another. And we're going to talk about how Coach got the men to love one another rather than love him. This is one of the great tactical and strategic decisions great coaches can make and what great leaders can make. But first, I wanted to reintroduce Pat Williams, who's the co-founder of the Orlando Magic, and he has written so many books on leadership, it's hard to remember. But we've done an hour with him on John Wooden, uh, Martin Luther King, Jackie Robinson, Walt Disney. I just I, I, can't, I can go on and on, but we'll cover all of them, hopefully, over the next year. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks a million, Lee. Always good to chat with you. Uh, same here. I wanted to play you a clip of Jerry Kramer, um, you know, we learned from Coach Wooden that he knew how to motivate his players, that he was a great psychologist, and uh, he truly understood how to get inside the head of, uh, of his players. And let's hear from all-time great guard and five-time Pro Bowl and all-pro guard Jerry Kramer. And then let's get your reaction. I jumped off sides one time in a scrimmage, and he got in my face, and he said, Mr. The concentration period of a college student is five minutes, high school is three minutes, kindergarten is 30 seconds. You don't even have that, so where's that put you? Put me checking my shoe shine. I go up in the locker room, sitting there, chin in my hand, elbow me, looking at the floor, thinking, I'm never going to play for this guy. And he came in the door, came across the room, slapped me on the back of the neck, messed up my hair. He said, son, one of these days you're going to be the best guard in football. He turned around and walked away. And that started my motor. With that comment, he allowed me to think about being a great football player. And from that point on, I worked my tail off. I gave him everything I had. It made a profound impact on my life. One day, you're going to be a great football player. Talk about that, that, that both that discipline and being hard on the boy, but then quickly thereafter, and this is a grown man who is in many respects still a boy, as we all can be. Then that, that planting of that seed, Pat, the planting of that seed. 
Well, Lee, I think the message to all of us is that our words carry enormous impact. And it doesn't matter uh, whether we're an NFL coach or a parent or a teacher, school teacher or whatever. Uh, when we say something, we may not think much of it, perhaps, but uh, the receiver of our words will never forget it. So here is Jerry Kramer with that little uh, sentence. It was one sentence that Lombardi planted in him, and Jerry Kramer said, that was the turning point in my career and a major turning point in my life. Amazing, isn't it? It the really power, is. Yep. The power of our words, uh, the power of the impact of our lives on other people. And yep. so uh, there's a marvelous example of, uh, of that in action. And I bet, Lee, uh, any person can sit down and, and look back over their life and say, it was a word when I was seven years old or a derogatory word when I was 12 and I've, I've never forgotten it or something. You know, we never forget uh, the impact of other people on our life and, and the words that they say to us. And whether we're uh, five years old or 75, you know, those words stick. So uh, Lombardi understood that, and uh, Jerry Kramer was the beneficiary. You bet. You know, you wrote in your book, and I'm going to quote two uh, specific passages from the great defensive end Willie Davis. Uh, and imagine a young African-American player going all the way up to this part of America where, boy, my goodness, there aren't a lot of African-Americans, and it's cold, and Willie's wondering what's going on. But here's what he says about Coach Coach Lombardi taught football and life in a way that helped you picture it in your mind. When he spoke, you could actually visualize doing what he said. You thought, I can do this, and I can become successful with it. And later you said, he could hear his voice from a block away, and when you heard it, you felt something. His emotion, it became yours. You could be exhausted, spent, unable to move, but then Coach Lombardi would start talking, and he'd get your blood pumping. And soon you were ready to go out and run your heart out for him emotion he had it and he communicated it to us talk about this this communication thing and also this vision thing because they do go hand in hand if you're going to communicate what are you communicating how are you communicating it and what are you pointing people towards talk about those things pat well i think the first two qualities of great leaders uh first of all is our is vision and secondly uh communicating your vision and Lombardi was a visionary. We've got a story in there about John Madden, who I got to talk to. And John Madden talked about Lombardi's greatest strength was his vision. He knew where he wanted to take those Packers. Uh, he, he, he knew what the success was about. And he knew in his mind, well, the, he saw the finished product and then worked backwards, putting the pieces in place to turn that vision into reality. But Lombardi also knew that if you couldn't communicate your vision effectively and repeatedly, uh, that vision really wasn't going to do anything. It wasn't going anywhere. And uh, that was another great strength of his. He had a strong voice. Uh, you knew uh, that he was there. And, yeah, he could bark. He could also be tender. He, he did a lot of yelling and, uh, and, and picked his spots pretty well. Uh, but those players responded to him, and uh, they knew exactly what he was saying and what he was trying to accomplish. So when you, when you study great leaders, Lee, every single one of them 
Uh, they all had a vision. They were all very strong and faithful in that vision, and uh, they had the ability to communicate their vision. Yeah, and we learned uh, that. Two vital parts of being a great leader. Yep, and we learned that in our discussion of Bear Bryant, if you remember. And there was that clip I had played where all the boys who are now men were looking back at their lives with Coach Bryant. And it was interesting because you could tell that Bear's toughness had gotten them to bond closer together. Those boys had gone through a crucible together. And this was obviously and clearly part of what Bear was up to. And I, I can only guess this is what Coach Lombardi was up to, too. Well, I think there are many similarities between Bear Bryant and Vince Lombardi. Uh, they, were, they were strong. They were tough. Uh, they could bark. Uh, their players uh, were intimidated by them to, to a certain degree. And, uh, but they were both teaching life. And all of Bear Bryant's players told me the same thing, that uh, he, was, he was getting us ready for the long pull of life far beyond football. Now, he was a college coach with the much younger players, but Lombardi was doing the same thing as a pro coach. You know, he was investing in those players and getting them ready uh, for a long lifetime after football. So uh, both, both of them, and I think all great coaches really are great teachers, uh, remember what uh, Lombardi said. They call it coaching, but it's really teaching. Yep. So to be a great, a great uh, leader of any sort, you really have to be an outstanding teacher. You've got to work at it. You've got to really develop an ability to teach. And above all, you've got to be a lifelong learner because you can't be a lifelong teacher <laughs> if you're not a lifelong learner. That's so true. And you know in your book, Pat, you were talking about the, the three things uh, that are essential for building any winning team, whether sports, business, life, a church. And it's teach fundamentals, maintain discipline, and three, instill a sense of mutual love. And I wanted to do another quick reading from your book, and this is from Lombardi himself. Quote, if you're going to play together as a team, you've got to care for one another. You've got to love each other. Each player has to be thinking about the next guy and saying, if I don't block that man, my friend is going to get his legs broken. I need to do my job so he can do his Talk about that. Well, there's a lot to that, isn't there? At the end of the day, you know, great football teams are, are built be, by being great uh, teammates and having a great uh, sense of unity. And uh, Lombardi was uh, constantly stressing that. Every great coach does. Every great organization, I think, is made up of teamwork. Uh, there's an interesting story uh, about Jerry Richardson, the uh, Carolina Panthers owner, you know, who started that team up from scratch as an expansion team. And he had his first meeting with the business community in Charlotte. And he said, excuse me, may I come to the point? I want you to know how we do things. Number one, <clears throat> we believe in teamwork. Number two, we're always on time. <clears throat> Number three, we do what we're going to do. We, we do what we say we're going to do. <laughs> That's Jerry Richardson, the owner of the Panthers in Charlotte, uh, you know, at his first meeting in the business community. So teamwork carries the day, Lee. It always has, always will. Well, well Pat, we really appreciate you joining us. We wanted to go out, uh, and I thank you for always doing this. We're talking to Pat Williams, the co-founder of the Orlando Magic. He's written so many books on leadership, I can't count them. Uh, but Vince Lombardi is among many. And uh, we're going to go out, Pat, uh, listening to Vince Lombardi 
who is not just a visionary, but what a communicator. And here is rare audio of Vince Lombardi giving a pep talk just before Super Bowl II. If the only team, maybe, in the history of the National Football League will ever have this opportunity to do it twice. Boys, I will follow you. I'd be so proud of that. I just, I just fill up. It's not going to come easy. This is a club that's going to hit you. They're going to try to hit you, and you're going to take it out of them. Just hit, just run, just block, and just tag. We do that, there's no question what the answer is going to be in this morning. Keep your poise. There's nothing that they can show you out there. You'll have to face a number of times, right? Right, right, right. Pat, thanks so much for joining us. Much appreciated, as always. Lee, always good to talk to you. Thanks so much. You bet. And this is Lee Habib. And listen to the frankness, the simplicity with which Coach motivates his boys like they're predestined to win this game. This is Lee Habib. This is Our American Stories.